Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for our sake alone. I mean, for, excuse me, for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. James Boys once wrote, The resurrection of Christ is the amen of all of his promises. So I'm absolutely blessed that you've all joined us today as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ here on Easter Sunday. And I still feel kind of strange saying that because the truth is we celebrate the resurrection here at First Baptist Church every single Sunday. The life and the ministry and death and the resurrection of Christ are central to our worship every Lord's Day. And so we always celebrate the resurrection because it is the foundation of our hope. But today, manifestly, is officially Easter, and it is historically the anniversary of the day that the tomb in which Jesus was laid was found empty. And because of that, it is a day that more people around the world are taking notice of this holiday, the fact that Jesus had risen. Today's the day that more people are thinking about the resurrection, or at least they're celebrating in some fashion, whether it's uh, Easter eggs or chocolate bunnies or honey-glazed hams, which, by the way, is probably one of my favorites. And so in light of that this morning, indeed, it is a special celebration, which, by the way, is why we took the time to meet together with other congregations in our community as a larger gathering of the body of Christ this morning for a sunrise Easter service. Three churches with common essential beliefs in the gospel met before sunrise to think about and to talk about and to celebrate the fact that when the sun rose that first Easter morning, the lifeless body of Christ was not there. Saying those words gives me the goosebumps every time. And so, yes, this morning is significantly special to us, which, by the way, of God's providence connects perfectly with where we are in our sermon series in the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. This week, we come to the end of Paul's explanation of justification um, by grace through faith or the fact that we are saved simply by faith in Christ. And Paul, in our text today, assures us that the promise of salvation, the promise of justification made available through Christ is for us by faith. That's where Paul will end up today. That's the me laying the cards on the table, telling you where we're going. 
Paul will move us from the cross to the empty tomb and give us the assurance that we, like Abraham, are permanently made right with God, not by the works that we do, but by faith in the promise that God had made. And that is what the resurrection is. It is the undisputable proof that God keeps his promises to those who believe in him. As John Boyce says again, and I'll say it again, I think it's a quote worth remembering. The resurrection of Christ is the amen of all his promises. So turn with me then to Romans chapter 4. And in fact, you'll probably want to keep your Bibles open because we're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 3 and 4. But in Romans 4, in verse 20, Paul writes, No one belief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul has finally arrived at the point at which he has been driving to in this letter, that the promise of justification, the promise of righteousness, the promise of salvation, and the forgiveness of our sins, that promise is not some abstract religious theological idea out there in space somewhere. That promise is not something that just happened to certain people in the past. That that promise is not some reward for doing good things or keeping the law or being super religious. That promise is not reserved for the pious few people that seem to figure out how to make God love them. That promise is for all of us. The promise is for you. That promise is for, for me. That is where Paul is taking us today. The words, it is counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul is saying the words written all the way back in Genesis 15 were not just written for Abraham's sake. Those words were not simply written for the nation of Israel and their sake. Those words were written in the past all those years ago for all of us to remind us of the promises that God himself has made. To give us the assurance that if we believe in the promise, God is faithful. God is faithful to keep his promises. It reminds us that, that we are justified, that we are saved by faith in the promise as a gift of his glorious grace, which is exactly where Paul began this section in Romans the section beginning in chapter 3 where Paul explains the good news of the gospel, he began this section declaring that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. From midway of chapter 3 all the way to the end of chapter 4, Paul has been unpacking the good news that justification being made righteous in the sight of God is not by anything that we can do for God. Not by being sincere, not by being religious, not by not trying really hard, but by faith in Christ alone. You see, Paul wrote the book of Romans to clearly explain the gospel. 
And the thing that we need to understand is that Paul, when he does this, he, he theologically unpacks for the Romans and us by extension what the gospel is and the blessings that the gospel brings and then how then we are to live when we finally get to, to chapter 12 at some point in the future. How we are to live in light of the gospel. The truth is the gospels, the gospels that were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were eyewitness accounts that were written down and, and they were a record of what happened in history. They record the life and ministry and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all of them combined to give us a three-dimensional perspective of Jesus in his humanity and Jesus in his divinity. They help us to understand that Jesus was a lowly servant, but also he was the king of the universe. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that he was the son of man and also the son of God. And they make absolutely abundantly clear that he is the promised Messiah, the Christ. And the Gospels tell us what Jesus did and record for us the things that he said. And they help us to see that God intervened personally into human history to do for us the things that we ourselves couldn't do. They record the fact that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. That is something so often overlooked when we read the Gospels. He lived a sinless life fulfilling the law and keeping the covenant of works that no one could keep. They, the Gospels reveal in His humanity that he earned a perfect righteousness that God requires for fellowship, a righteousness we couldn't earn. God demands perfection, and we could never live up to that, but he did it. And then he suffered on the cross, enduring not only the punishment of men, but then the wrath of God the Father for our sins. They help us to understand that Jesus atoned for our sins that we could never get a clean of, on our own, he literally died in our place. And at the moment that he died, the veil that separated God and man was torn in two. They reveal the truth that he was buried historically. And that on the third day, he was raised to new life, proving that he is what he claimed to be God in the flesh and proving that he could do what he promised to do, which was to save us from our sins and reconcile us back into the relationship with God that we were created for. The four Gospels explain what happened in history. They tell us what happened in time and space. But Paul's letter takes this historical event and explains what was accomplished through Christ. He unpacks what, what all that means for us theologically and how we are to live then in light of that truth. Paul unpacks the details so that we can fully understand the gospel and have assurance of what it means. And Paul declares in Romans chapter 1, he opens up with a bang and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who does good works. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says it's the power of God to save everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in the Old Testament, by the way, that the righteous shall live by good works and, and religious deeds. No, it doesn't say that, right? The Old Testament itself says that the righteous shall live by faith. That is the opening declaration of Paul in the gospel, 
that he's preaching here. Paul's central point from the very beginning is justification. Salvation is by faith and no other means. This is why the text, this is why this text was the one that Martin Luther read that helped him to finally understand what he was missing as a, as a monk in the Roman Catholic Church. He said that when he finally understood this text, the doors of heaven flew open and he finally entered into the kingdom of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he summarized for us what the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe it. Because God has said long ago, the righteous in his sight will live by believing what he has promised by faith. And then Paul begins to explain in detail what the gospel is. And he starts not with the good news. He starts with the bad news. The truth that all of mankind must face, that the wrath of God is revealed against all of mankind because of our sin. This is the universal truth of all people. Jew and Gentile alike, black and white alike, male and female alike, Republican and Democrat alike, all of mankind is by nature and by our decisions sinners against God. And we suppress the truth about him in our own unrighteousness. And we deceive ourselves believing that we are by nature good people. We think for some reason that we have the ability by ourselves to do enough good stuff on our own to make ourselves righteous, either by obeying a bunch of rules and keeping some legal standard or by performing some religious rituals. But it's just simply not true. All of mankind, as Paul demonstrates, is universally condemned. Paul, he concludes his airtight case and says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is what he says. All have sinned and deserve God's justice. Every single human being who's ever drawn a breath deserves God's justice. And no one is excluded from that. And to make it worse, there's nothing we on our own, of our own accord, can do to fix it. Obeying the law will not save us. This is a truth that the world will not come to terms with. This is why the the world out there thinks our problem is either legislation or education. We either need to make laws to keep people from doing stuff, or we need to educate them and educate them until they finally become good enough to do stuff. It won't work. The law won't save us. Being religious won't save us. Everybody and their brother grew up in some religion somewhere, and a lot of people think that they are right with God simply because they grew up religious. Religion won't save us. Being born into the right family won't save us. Being born into the right country won't save us. Philosophy doesn't save us. Education won't save us. Politicians definitely will not save us. Can I get an amen to that? Skin color won't save us. Nothing in all of creation can save us from the awful and terrible wrath of God that we all rightly deserve. That is the bad news. That's the bad news that Paul makes clear, and that's the bad news that makes the good news necessary. You see, no one takes the medicine unless they understand the diagnosis. No one buys the solution unless they know what the problem is. No one receives the good news. No one really receives the good news under faith until they understand the bad news. And so Paul tells us the bad news. 
But then Paul, after that, he tells us the good news, which bears repeating. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who? For all who believe there is the good news. That's the good news that we're hoping in. That's the good news that we're holding on to. God makes available the righteousness we need to be restored in our relationship to Him, not by doing stuff for Him, but by faith in Christ. He continues and he says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified, and I want you to hear this, by His grace as a gift through the mechanism, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice by His blood to be received by what? By faith. What we need to understand is our problem is not something that we could ever fix. It's not something that we could overcome in ourselves. We were helpless and hopeless, but God himself made a way. God himself did it all for us. Sin has to be atoned for. Justice must be done. It's something we all instinctively understand. And so God put his own son forward to be the sacrifice for us. That's what Good Friday is about. God the Son, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, was tortured and crucified. It is by His blood the wrath of God has been satisfied. It is by His blood our sins have been washed away. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus is what we sing. It is through His death that the barrier between God and man has been removed. As symbolized by the veil being torn in the temple. And Paul says this was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He didn't immediately give people what they deserve. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just. It's one of the important attributes of God that he is just, that he makes sure that that evil is punished so that he might be just, making sure sin has been punished, but also that he then through this could be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God, through Christ, is just, and at the same time, the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And then Paul says, then what has become of our boasting? What can we brag about? (laughs) Nothing. It's been excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. And listen to this. He says, for we hold, we cling to the fact that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul not only says it's by faith, but it's by faith alone. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised or the Jews by faith and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, every one of us, by faith. And he says, do we now overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. 
Paul is passionately and powerfully arguing all the way through this text that salvation for everyone is by faith in faith alone. And then in chapter 4, Paul then gives us the example of this faith, an example in history for us to look at. He says, what then shall we say was gained or learned by Abraham, our forefather according to flesh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Paul takes us all the way back to Genesis again. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God, under no compulsion, under no coercion, by his grace, by his own will, and by his own love, made a promise to Abraham. And Abraham simply believed the promise that God had made. And on the basis of that belief, God then counted or reckoned or declared Abraham to be fully and completely righteous in his sight. God, on the basis of Abraham's faith, granted him a righteous standing that is required to be in fellowship with God. Abraham was justified simply because he had faith in God and his promise. That is the example that Paul holds up for us. And then Paul continues and says, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted, not counted as a gift, but as his due. Or in other words, your paycheck that you get from your work is not a gracious gift to the company you work for. They might think it is, right? But it's not. It is what they owe you. If you work for something, then you earn it. It is not a gift, So he says, now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And then he says, and the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly sinners, his faith, like Abraham's faith, is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the the one whom God counts righteous apart from the works, from works. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Can I get an amen to that? Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then Paul asks, is this blessing only for the circumcised of the Jews or also the uncircumcised? And then he asks the question, he says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? And Paul says it was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of of righteousness that he had by faith before he was circumcised. The meaning of this is Abraham's salvation was based on faith alone and not some religious ritual. His faith in salvation, his faith in salvation came first. The ritual then came much later. As we say, faith was the root of his salvation Circumcision was the fruits, the outworking of his salvation. Paul continues and says, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that the righteousness could be counted to them or credited to them as well. Paul is saying, everybody, including the Gentiles, are saved by grace through faith alone. Jews and Gentiles alike. And he continues, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
And then he says, if, for if the inheritance, the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Right. If he's, he's saying if, if keeping the law is required for for us to obtain the promise, then he says faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, if you got to do stuff to be saved, then your faith is pointless. And the promise that God made you is completely worthless. He says the law only brings wrath and only can point us to what sin really is anyway. And then Paul says in verse 16, he says, this is why. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. And by the way, brothers and sisters, this is the thing that we're after. This is what we want. We want the guarantee. We want the assurance as life changes and the world changes. And as we experience difficulty and we find that we walk in doubts, what we want is this ironclad God-given guarantee that God is going to keep the promise that he's made. He says, since it depends on faith and rests on grace, it is guaranteed to those who believe, not only to the adherents of the law, the Jews, but to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, the Gentiles, who is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And then he goes on and says that he believed in God who gave life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. And what Paul is trying to help us all to see is not only is God trustworthy and desires to keep his promise that he's made to us, but God is all-powerful and that he is capable of keeping his promise to us. That God can create anything out of nothing and he can raise the dead to life. That God is willing and completely able to keep his promises. And then Paul says, in hope he believed. Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. The thing that we understood from last week was Abraham had no physical or medical or human reason to believe that God would keep his promise to give him a child. Looking at his circumstances, looking at how old he was, 100 years old, his wife 90 years old, already past menopause, humanly speaking, there was no reason to trust God for that promise. But in spite of what he saw with his eyes, he continued to believe, which leads to the text to where we are today. Paul writes, no, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And look at this. He says, that is why. This is an important phrase right here because this is the cause and effect relationship that we need to see between these two verses here. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. He believed God and he believed the promise. And it says that is why he was counted. It was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted righteous. Not because he was circumcised. Abraham was counted as righteous, not because we look back in the Bible and see he was the an awesome man of God in the Bible. Abraham was counted righteous not because he built altars to God. Abraham was counted righteous not because he kept the law. 
Abraham was counted righteous not because he was a, he was a faithful man who never failed, which by the way didn't happen. He failed. If you read Genesis, you'll see that. None of these are reasons why he was counted righteous. Abraham believed and was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith. That is why his faith is counted as righteousness. He believed that God could and would keep his promise. And that's why he was justified. That's why he was right with God. As the Bible tells us over and over again, the righteous live by what? I'm sorry, by what? Faith. Righteousness comes by faith. Righteousness does not come by the law. Righteousness is not a religious activity. Righteousness is granted by God as a gift of grace received by faith. Paul says in verse 23, but the word it was counted to him were written, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This truth is not just for Abraham and his physical descendants, the nation of Israel. This truth is for all who believe. And I want you to hear me. That includes all of you. We can get really abstract when we read the Bible. We can get down into the details and think about the history and the context and all this. And sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. What, what the Bible is communicating to me and you, the reason why it says what it says is the promises of God are for you. If there's anything this Easter that you take home and that you can hold on to that will get you through this week, let this be it. The promises of God are for you. If you believe, it is simple as that. It cannot be any more complicated than that. The God has made promises and they belong to you. Rejoice in that. If you believe, We've heard it before, but we need to hear it again. If you believe your sins, past, present, and future are washed away. All the sins that, that cause you even to this moment shame when you think of them. We all have them, right? Those things that we've said, those things that we did when we remember them, even when we were young. We think about them and go, oh, my word. What a horrible person I was, right? Those things that just make your stomach turn. That has been forgiven. That is gone. The ugly, hurtful, vile things that you have done in your life have been completely atoned for. That is the promise for those who believe. And more than that, the perfect righteousness of Christ himself is promised to you as a gift. You are made righteous by faith if you believe as if you kept the entire law. Not that you won't sin, but you are righteous by decree. As if you kept the covenant of works, you can be made perfectly righteous in the sight of God and never feel shame in His presence because Christ's perfect obedience has been credited to you. That is the promise of God. And you can have the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside you, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to lead you, to guide you, and then to assure you in those moments of doubt that you have been made right with God, that you are a child of God, that you are part of His family. And you can have the peace knowing that you now possess in the moment eternal life. That when you step across this line, out of this world into the next world, as we all will do, right? 
Let's just settle that in our hearts. We will all take our turn. That when that happens, you can know that Christ himself will see you safely home. And you will live in perpetual joy. As we read in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice saying from from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall they be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're waiting for is when God finally restores all things. All of this and so much more is the promise that God makes The God who created the heavens and the earth is the promise that he has made to you. Take your finger like this. And right here. He made it to me. The promise is for you. Those whose and those promises are simply and forever yours by receiving it by faith, by believing God and his gospel. Notice that Paul says, and it's, he says, it, meaning righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who will be delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And there is so, so much to see in this statement here, but I promise I will be brief as I can. First, notice Paul says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for a justification. Charles Hodge says this, this verse is the comprehensive statement of the gospel. It's the gospel narrowed down into a little thumbnail sketch, into just a few words. Jesus was delivered over to death to make atonement for our trespasses and was raised to new life to demonstrate that justification by faith in him is real. That, that God has kept his promise. The statement is a summary of the gospel. But the second thing I want you to notice is God raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for us for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And this is something that's really easy to overlook when you read it in English. But notice that the verbs delivered up and raised in the Greek, they're in this exact same tense. And the way that the, the, the sentence is constructed is what we need to understand is, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead is the same one who delivered him up to his death. Just let that sink in for just a quick second. The one who raised Jesus from the dead is the same one who delivered him up to his death. That means not only did God the Father raise Christ from the dead, he is the one who put him to death in the first place. And yes, Judas did betray him. And yes, the Jews arrested him. And yes, the Romans nailed him to the cross. But it was all by the plan and the decree and the will of the sovereign Lord. God, the Father, is the one who put him to death. And before you object to that, let me remind you what the prophet Isaiah himself said. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Him. In fact, even remember what Paul himself says in Romans chapter 3. We are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, the Father, put forward as a propitiation, 
a sacrifice meant to assuage wrath by what? His blood to be received by faith. It was God the Father who sent the Son into the world to pay for our redemption by His blood. Yes, He died for us. Yes, it was our sins that made His death necessary, but God is the one who put His Son to death for us. And this tells us two very important things. Number one, God's love for us is real. Again, if there's an Easter message to give you hope, that is the truth. God's love for you, for you, is real. Do you understand that? Do you live in that? I know that in a dark world and facing the things that we face and... <clears throat> And knowing ourselves the way that we know ourselves, it seems almost impossible for this to be true. How can God love the likes of someone like me? But God's love for you is real. Because he could have just simply let us all die in our sins. He could have let this whole thing just play out by itself and let us face the wrath that we deserve. That would have been complete justice. But God, His love for you is real. In fact, it's the most famous Bible verse you know. God so loved the world, that includes you, that He gave His only Son up to death, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love for you is real. More real than the chair that you're sitting in right now more real than the sun that's shining through the windows right now, more real than the relationships you have on this earth. God's love for you is real and immutable. That's why he sacrificed his son for you. Number two, it tells us, the salvation is completely the work of God. It is not the work of man in any fashion. It is not something you can earn. It is not something you can participate in. He is the one who paid for it. He is the one who accomplished it. He is the one that made it possible. He is the one who tore the veil. He is the one who spanned the chasm between us and the Father. He is the one who took you who were dead in your sins and trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, and made you alive in Christ. Salvation is 100% the work of God and God alone. And it is a gift of grace that we do not work for in any way. We simply receive it by faith, and that is the good news. Righteousness is counted to you and to me who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up by God for our trespasses, and who was raised by God for our righteousness. Glory, hallelujah. Now, the third thing to notice here that Paul says, and I'll finish with this. He says, God raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. This is not just an accidental religious expression that he puts here. This, this, this is the little truth, the literal truth. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. You see, Jesus is, is our friend but not just our friend. Jesus is a rabbi, but not just some rabbi. Jesus is a prophet, but he's not just some prophet. 
Jesus is a priest, but not just some priest. Jesus is our Savior, but not just our Savior. He is our Lord. And this is such an important thing for us. Because the word Lord in the Greek is kurios, which means master or owner or sovereign. This was a title used of Caesar, by the way. The Romans used to say when they would give homage to Caesar, Caesar is Lord. But Christians refused that to their death and would say instead that Jesus is Lord. He is our master. Once we come to faith in Christ, we not only benefit from his saving activity, we come under his lordship as one of his subjects. Why? Why is he the Lord and master of our lives? Because he's the one who paid and purchased our redemption. He is the one who paid the price that set us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin. He purchased us from the slave market of sin, and now we belong to him. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. We were purchased by Christ at a price that is beyond our ability to reckon. On this verse, David Gunderson once wrote, and I'll quote him here. Paul is not simply saying that we have been bought and as with every purchase that there is a price. He is not reminding them about the general conceptual connection between purchase and price. He's talking about blood. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the Son. He says that you were bought. Look at what it cost. You were bought. Do not forget the price that was paid or from God's perspective. I bought you and I paid dearly. He continues and says, oh, how much he paid. See Christ on the cross forsaken by the father so that we might be forgiven, not just forgiven, but reconciled and not just reconciled, but sanctified and not just sanctified, but glorified and not just glorified, but adopted. See the father turning his back on his heaving, suffocating, agonized, mystified son for the first and last time in history of time and eternity and hear the son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And hear the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And hear the prophet say, the Lord was pleased to crush him. God's pleasure with his son and God's pleasure in crushing his son are incompatible and incomprehensible, which is why Paul does not just say you were bought. He says you were bought with a price. Then he asks how many things have been bought and sold and bartered in the history of the world. The number is almost infinite. But there never has been a purchase like this purchase because there's never been a price like this price. If you were looking for a motivating reason to devote yourself to God afresh today, this is it. If you were searching for a reason to get up in the morning and to fulfill your Christian duty, let this be your reason. If you desperately need strength to love and to serve and pray and fight and forgive and to study and to stand and preach and to parent and to witness and endure and rejoice, here is gospel strength because perhaps the only redemptive reality more powerful than the fact that you were bought is the height of the price that was paid. Jesus was not just our Savior. He is our Lord because he purchased our pardon at a price. 
He died so that we could go free. Not by what we do, but by faith. And He was raised on the third day, on the very first Easter Sunday, proving that the price was paid in full. And proving that God keeps all His promises. And all those promises are yours. Not by your religiousness. Not by your ability to to keep the law. And not by your ability to do good deeds. Those promises are yours by faith in Christ who is our Lord. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.